This episode is brought to you by one of the greatest civil rights leaders, a man who consistently extolled the virtues of nonviolence, even when teaching his fellow leaders about the importance of nonviolent resistance. The man who successfully put together the March on Washington in 1963, as well as starting the Freedom Rides in 1947. And trust me, it's not who you think it is. I am, of course, talking about none other than Bayard Rustin, a.k.a. Martin Luther King Jr.'s right-hand man. If you're wondering who led MLK to champion nonviolent protest, look no further than Bayard Rustin. Without his guidance, leadership, and desire for change, there's no telling how different the civil rights movement would have gone. So why haven't you heard his name as often as Martin Luther King Jr. or Ralph David Abernathy or John Lewis or Andrew Young? Probably because he was openly gay and a proud communist. These two facts made other leaders in the civil rights movement consider him a liability. So while he was not shy about being in the spotlight, he often worked behind the scenes as an organizer. After successfully helping pass the Civil Rights Act, Rustin devoted his life to helping the working class, similar to other members of the movement, including Martin Luther King Jr. himself. He also frequently went on humanitarian missions, aiding those escaped from places like Cambodia. He was actually on a humanitarian mission to Haiti when he passed away in 1987. There's an important lesson to be learned from the life of Bayard Rustin. Don't ever let anyone force you to stay in the shadows and always, always work towards what's right. Welcome to Out of History. This means that we can walk the streets as ourselves and not be harassed by anybody. Just be ourselves. Be proud to be ourselves. radically new definition of what it means to be masculine. It's a pretty fucked up society when the army gives me a medal for killing a man, and a dishonorable discharge for loving him. The way that society is now, there are certain people who can't afford to watch. So those who can, do it on behalf of those who can. Hello, and hi. Welcome back to Out of History, a queer history podcast. It's been a while. (laughs) I have no viable excuses for why it's been over a year since I released an episode. Uh, I just got busy with other stuff, including my other podcast you may have heard of uh, called The Conspiracy Podcast. Um, I've also really been working hard on my career and on other creative writing projects and trying to get out more and spend more time with my wife. So I just haven't been able to work on this podcast. But I feel like it is time to restart this podcast. Um, I still feel like there's not really any podcast like this that covers the kind of history I cover. And this is information people in the LGBT plus community really need to know. I actually was talking to a friend of mine recently And they didn't know Oscar Wilde was gay, which is like ridiculous to me because I feel like you, I feel like as an English major, everyone knew that. And with the world the way it is now, our history is more important than ever. While you could say that there are more LGBT plus role models now than there probably have ever been before, there are still lots of people who want to believe that 
our community didn't really have much of a history until the 80s or the late 60s. And I believe it's important, not just for us current queers today, but for the young up-and-comers to realize that we have always been here. We have always been here and we have always contributed to history and we're still going to be here in 50 years. Our names might change, our identities might change. Certainly, there is probably not a community with more fluctuation than the LGBT community, but I believe that's one of our strengths. And for us to truly flourish and continue to grow and develop and be amazing, we have to not only know our own history, but we also have to be able to pay homage to those who came before us. And that is why I do this podcast. So let's jump back in with a woman you're probably familiar with already. Um, Although I'm probably biased because there are quite a few nurses in my family. Anyways, you're probably most familiar with her as a creator of many of the techniques and practices in modern nursing, but she was also a skilled statistician with a knack for numbers and data visualization. Was nurse a big enough clue? Okay, so obviously today we're going to be talking about the lady with the lamp, Florence Nightingale. Not only does she have a fantastic name, but she's known as the founder of modern nursing practices. She came from a fairly well-to-do family and spent her youth studiously gaining knowledge. Her father guided her education, leading her to read the great philosophers, engage in social and political discourse, as well as read and write five languages at a young age. So she had a pretty intense education. She was also a very religious person, and in her late teens, she felt a calling from God to reduce human suffering and decided to go into nursing. Um, At the time, during this time period, nurses were considered drunks and prostitutes, so her family was, needless to say, quite horrified by her decision and believed that a profession like nursing was beneath her. But she really had this like Joan of Arc feeling towards this calling to be a nurse. This was what she was truly called to be. And this was the best way for her to fulfill this true calling. So possibly because of her family's misgivings about her pursuing this career, she ended up studying in secret at a Protestant women's college in Germany. And then once she graduated, she became the superintendent at a London hospital. Within a year, she had already improved nursing care, working conditions, and efficiency in the hospital. So she started setting her sights on training the nurses there instead. However, her plans were halted when the Crimean, I've heard Crimean and Crimean, and I like Crimean, so I'm going to say Crimean. Her plans were halted when the Crimean War broke out. Um, Florence gathered a party of 38 women and arrived at the Barrack Hospital in Scutera in November of 1854. When she got there with her little group, she found the hospital to be a sickening, unsanitary, overcrowded, vermin-infested, rat-hole death trap with a mortality rate of 50%, which sucks. (laughs) Like, 
I feel like a mortality rate like that, you'd be better off just like not doing anything. Like don't bring them in, just like set them outside and let them die naturally because it's, you're going <laughs> to, you're probably going to have a better chance just like letting them die or heal on their own than bringing them into this terrible place. Um, what's worse, five days after she arrived, injured soldiers from two more battles arrived and completely overwhelmed the hospital. So this place was disgusting, unsanitary. Everyone was dying left and right. And now suddenly it's crowded. So fighting the doctors who disdained a woman's interference into them doing their jobs in the shittiest way possible, Nightingale got to work delegating tasks, getting rooms cleaned, getting the laundry cleaned, and most importantly, making sure the patients were cared for. She made sure that every patient was bathed, clothed, fed, and given psychological support, which is like the bare minimum today, but it was revolutionary at the time to make sure that every patient was given like the bare necessities to survive in this hospital. Endearing herself to the sick and wounded is actually what created her nickname, the Lady of the Lamp, which was given to her because she would make nightly rounds to check on the patients. After, okay, are you ready for this? I don't know if you are. After Florence took over, the mortality rate dropped to 2.2%. Like, that is insane. Can I repeat that? So after she took over and basically, like, cleaned everything and did the bare minimum to make sure these patients were taken care of, the mortality rate dropped to 2.2%. And if you can't remember from two minutes ago, <laughs> the mortality rate was 50%. So half of all those people were dying. And she does like basic cleaning practices and it drops to 2.2%. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. In addition to everything else she did. Florence also showed her other great skill at Barrick Hospital, data analysis and a firm grasp of statistics. Now, I am not a data analyst by trade, but I am always a slut for data. Every job I've had, I've wanted to pour over as much data as possible. And Statistics was literally the only math class I was ever good at. <laughs> so I greatly admire the fact that not only was she an absolute pro at this kind of thing, but she also kind of pioneered parts of it. So besides the awful, terrible, detestable, disgusting conditions the patients endured at the hospital, which I've already kind of talked about a little bit. Florence also realized how awful the record-keeping was in regards to patients' deaths. So this hospital was like, I don't know what the fuck they were doing before Florence got there because everything she looked at was just, like, awful. So at the time, the hospital maintained three separate registers, all of which gave completely different accounts. And as a result, uh, Nightingale gathered data and created graphs for an 850-page report she submitted to the British government about how awful this hospital was and everything she had done and was doing 
to try and make it better. (laughs) Imagine being the British government and this woman you've never heard of before just like sends you a tome about one shitty hospital in Crimea. Interestingly, for this report, she created the Coxcomb graph, which is a form of pie chart. It's actually really cool. Um, I could describe it to you, but it probably wouldn't make much sense. It's, I mean, it's circular like a pie chart and bigger things also extend out farther. I don't know. I'm doing a terrible job. Just Google it. Just Google it. Save us both the embarrassment. Just Google it. Anyways, she created the Coxcomb graph as a way of tracking the causes of mortality at the hospital. And this was also her way of figuring out ways to reduce the mortality rate, which she did tremendously when she figured out that patients were dying from dirty conditions. Like if you're dying because you're living in an unsanitary area, whoa, 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 just clean it up and suddenly the mortality rate drops. So this gigantic report she sent to the British government actually led them to institute huge reforms in the military medical system, Um, basically taking the tactics she had used at Barrack Hospital and extending it to other military medical hospitals, saving countless hundreds and thousands of lives in the process just because of one busybody nurse who wasn't about to let some stuffy doctors stand in her way of doing what's right. These reforms also led to the Nightingale Fund, which she used to establish the Nightingale School of Nursing in London. And there she established evidence-based nursing training. Um, Most of these tactics are actually still used today. Like, she really is the founder of modern nursing, even though she was doing this, like, 150 years ago. Okay, so that's the basic history of Florence Nightingale. Of course, you can definitely do a much deeper dive and find out more of what she did in the Crimean War and more about her school of nursing and all the different things she was teaching women at the time. Um, The way she basically took nursing from a dingy job for society's cast-offs to a wonderful, revered position that it holds today. This isn't that type of podcast. Like, I'll tell you all the cool things she's done. And she did some pretty cool things. And she's pretty great. And clearly highly intelligent. Way smarter than me. You know, I'm not just going to talk about somebody on this podcast just because they're smart. And they did some good in the world. Let's dive in to the lesser talked about part of Florence Nightingale's life. So, what do we know about Florence Nightingale's love life. What do we know indeed? If you look at her through the lens of traditional Western history, she essentially had nothing resembling a love life. After she came back from the war, she essentially spent the next half century as an invalid and claimed she was too ill to focus on such frivolous things as marriage and instead spent all of her time on her work. Her aunt, which I don't really know how to pronounce this name. It's like M-A-I. I want to pronounce it my, like Mai Tai, but I feel like it might be May. And May sounds more like a name they would have had at this time. Anyways, you don't care. So her aunt May Smith 
left her family to take care of Nightingale, which might not seem that strange. It just kind of seems like she's a really nice aunt to take care of her her niece who was to, who insisted she was an invalid. But it's it becomes a little more interesting when you know Florence's history with her aunt. So when Florence was much younger, um, I believe like a young teenager, she became ill and was nursed back to health by her aunt May. The situation led to them becoming devoted to each other, and Florence described their relationship in a letter as like two lovers. It's kind of creepy because it's like her aunt, but also like upper middle class people have always been weird. So, yeah. Um, Here's how Nightingale's main biographer, Cecil Woodham Smith, characterizes their relationship. In spite of their relationship difference, May worshipped Florence with the worship of a disciple and a master. That is saying that May was the disciple and Florence was the master. She placed Florence above ordinary humanity, above the claims of even her husband and children, and became her protector interpreter and consoler. She also had a cousin named Marion Nicholson, who she had a strong affection for. Um, She actually wrote in another letter, I have never loved but one person with passion in my life, and that was her. Uh, However, as fate would have it, Marion's brother Henry fell in love with Florence and tried to propose marriage to her. Then when Florence declined, his marriage proposal, uh, the two women kind of had a falling out and Florence was devastated by it. In the aftermath, she considered escaping society and becoming a nun. Uh, But luckily for, you know, us and uh, all anyone who's ever been in a hospital since 1854, she pursued her passion for nursing instead of scuttling away to a nunnery. So thank you. Thank you, God, or whoever spoke to her in a dream and told her to become a nurse for that. So she was clearly emotionally devoted to women and never to men. She adamantly refused all offers of marriage throughout her life. So besides the relationships and admiration and adoration she had, with her aunt and her cousin, there is some additional evidence that she had more than friendships with other women. And that evidence comes from a line in a memoir where she states, I have lived and slept in the same beds with English countesses and Prussian farm women. No woman has excited passions among women more than I have. I didn't just I didn't just pull a sneaky on you. I didn't, you know, sneak in a, a line from Lord Byron's memoir in there to try and trick you. That is actually a line written by Florence Nightingale, which like that's pretty <laughs> I, I don't want to say damning because damning sounds like it's a bad thing, but it's pretty convincing to me. So while it is true that language used in Victorian times was often more flowery and passionate than the language we use today, both towards members of the same sex and those of the opposite sex, which is always the excuse used by historians who want to believe that everyone was stoically strayed until 1969, 
Her own words, combined with her lifelong avoidance of relationships with men and her closeness with her aunt Mae Smith, certainly point to the strong possibility that she was a big ol' gay lesbian. One can easily assume she did not experience any attraction to the opposite sex, and this is easily expressed by her uh, unwillingness to enter into any marriage proposal with any man. And this was both before and after her stint in the Crimean War. If she was gay, it's possible she never acted on her desires at all, given the disdain Victorians had against almost any form of sexual expression, especially homosexual activity. I mean, going back to referencing a little bit earlier, look how they treated Oscar Wilde. I'm sorry, I really love Oscar Wilde as all English majors do. If you want to find an English major at a crowded party, just mention Oscar Wilde or the Iliad or Virginia Woolf and at least one person will come crashing through to give you you their opinion on them. Anyways, additionally, As I said before, she was a very religious person, and her strict religious beliefs could have also persuaded her to maintain a chaste existence. It certainly would not be the first time somebody decided to lead a chaste existence for religious reasons. At any rate, she was successful in forging ahead with her dream and what she believed was her true calling, despite the rigid constraints of her time and the disdain of her family, which is an accomplishment all women, straight or in the LGBT plus community, can appreciate and aspire to. She was the first female elected to the Royal Statistical Society and pioneered using new ways of displaying data in visual ways so non-statisticians like, you know, me, could understand them, such as the coxcomb charts that I mentioned earlier. She also became the first woman ever to be awarded the Order of Merit by the British government. So, gay or not, probably gay. Like, let's be real. She was gay. Like, she was pretty gay. I'm just saying she's gay. Florence Nightingale is an aspirational figure that any young girl, gay or not, can look up to. But especially gay, because young gay girls definitely don't have enough people to look up to, and especially not a whole lot, like Florence Nightingale. If you enjoy this episode, please feel free to follow me on Instagram at outofhistory.podcast, and I'll be posting fun little history memes and more information about episodes and even some teasers for upcoming episodes there, so it could be fun. Let's be friends. Um, you can also shoot me an email at out of dot history dot podcast at gmail.com so if you have anyone that you think i should cover on the podcast so if you can think of anyone who you think i should cover on the podcast feel free to shoot me an email or slide into my dms i'm always interested to hear what historical figures inspire other people so i hope you did enjoy this episode and i hope you learned something And I hope that I have inspired you to do some of your own research, not just on Florence Nightingale, but on any other historical figures you admire. Because history is gayer than you think. 
And I will talk to you guys next time. And don't forget, you're making your own history every day. So make it a good one. See you next time, guys. And that in hopes that someday there'll be no need to demonstrate the right to make love to anybody you want, any way you want. Or you gotta start somewhere.